Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. It's been eight months since Breonna Taylor was shot by the Louisville police, five months since the videotaped murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, and just over three months since Jacob Blake was paralyzed after being shot seven times in the back by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they're just a few of the high-profile incidents perpetrated by police against unarmed black men and women in this country. But violence by white Americans against people of color goes back not years, but centuries. In a new collection of essays from City Lights books titled Dispatches from the Race War, social justice advocate and anti-racism educator Tim Wise addresses white supremacy by tracing a line from the pushback against the Obama presidency to the encouragement of white nationalism by the Trump administration, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the stark realities of COVID's disproportional toll on communities of color. I'm very pleased to welcome Tim Weiss to our show now. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm okay, uh, although troubled. Uh, you've yeah. been writing about racism and white privilege in America for over two decades. Isn't this your your ninth book? Uh, yeah, it depends on how you count them. I had three <laughs> versions of one book, uh-huh. either because you know they needed to be updated or I'm very bad at uh, making my point the first and second time around. So. Depending on how you count them, um, it's either, it's either nine, seven or nine, eight, eight or seven. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Racism has been a thread running through the fabric of America since before its inception. But would you say that we've seen an uptick over the last five years or has it just been more attention paid to these events? Well, you know, I, it actually might be both of those things. I mean, the, the point that I try to make throughout the essay collection, uh, the new book, is that you know, on the one hand, um, this this racial conflict or race war, if you will, that some people seem to think is brewing, you know, has really always been going on for 400 years, going back to the colonial period. So some of this is obviously not all that new. Um, what I do it's just that we have cell phones now, where some of these right. uh, incidents are are being recorded, and that didn't happen in the past. Right. I mean, I think there's a visibility, obviously, that's that's caused by social media. Um, I think that there, you know, is is an awareness of some of the you know bad behaviors of overt bigots that we can see on YouTube and Facebook and other social media platforms that we maybe wouldn't have had, uh, you know, 30 years ago when I started doing this work or 100 years ago, even though it was obviously happening. At the same time, uh, I think we can also say that there has been an, a, a, an upsurge uh, in the sense that Carol Anderson talks about in her book, White Rage. You know, she, she sort of chronicles the history of white backlash to any kind of progress for black and brown folk, particularly black folk. And she talks about how in every era of American history that has happened. So at the end of enslavement, you had this massive pushback during the great migration to the north. You had this great white rage in response to black uh, folks moving north looking for jobs. During the civil rights movement, you had a big backlash. And then, of course, after Barack Obama was elected, even though that didn't really materially change conditions on the ground for the vast majority of African-Americans, it certainly upset the apple cart of the so-called caste system as Isabel Wilkerson calls it in her book by that name, that we've been operating under, so that it shook a lot of white folks' understanding of their place in the hierarchy, right, to have this black man as president. And so we're in that phase now with with Trumpism. Um, So it's part of- Oh, wait, wait, a lot of people thought that was the beginning of a post-racial America. Was that just wishful thinking by liberal white Americans? And what were were people of color saying about the status of race relations during Obama's eight years in office? Well, I mean, I think it depended, right? I mean, post-raciality is a concept that white people created to avoid having to deal with the reality that we can all see with our own eyes now. So I think that notion of post-racialism is obviously, you know, torpedoed at this point. For, for, for black and brown folks, I mean, there was a combination, you know, black and brown folks have always had, a, particularly black folks, have always had a, a very eyes wide open, realistic assessment of where things stood in the country. So on the one hand, they're more than willing to to be um, invigorated by and excited by and proud of the election of Barack Obama as a meaningful thing. I mean, John Lewis, you know, was openly weeping on election night and he 
gave more blood uh, and had his head cracked open more times than just about anybody in this country for the cause of freedom. But yet, you know, the day after the election, he went back to work to continue to fight for the things that he knew were not going to happen just because Barack Obama was president. So I think black folks understood that this was an important moment. Um, It certainly symbolically meant something. But it didn't mean what white folks thought it mean, which was, you know, now that these things are behind us, we don't have to talk about them anymore. And so Carol Anderson's argument is all the more true. You know, yes, there are these moments when the white rage seems to be, you know, dissipating, but then it comes right back. And that's been the constant in American history. And there were a number of high profile racist incidents during the Obama administration. For example, when Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. was arrested by a white policeman on his own front porch and the uh, 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin, the police shooting of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 and the 2015 murder of nine African-Americans during Bible study in a Charleston, South Carolina church. They all sparked outrage but didn't create a sustained movement the way the murder of George Floyd did. Right. Well, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, there are only sort of two ways to maybe understand that. Um, One would just be to say, you know, it's the accumulated, uh, uh, you know, recognition over time, the one straw that broke the camel's back kind of theory, you know, one more event, which sometimes does push us to a recognition of things. But I think it's more than that. I think really it was, it has been the coronavirus moment that has allowed people to see and to hear and to feel things that previously they ignored. Uh, because, you know, for the last, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, most of us have been in a somewhat lockdown kind of mode where, you know, we're not going about our daily routines in quite the same way. There's a, there's a certain um, quietude, there's a certain isolation, and that allows us to focus in on what's happening on the news. We're probably spending more time in front of the screens in our homes than we would have been. There's not the the hustle and bustle of our normal lives. And in that environment, the ability to see something like what happened to George Floyd, and I mean really see it, is different than maybe with Eric Garner, you know, or with Tamir Rice. And and so there's both the horror of the eight minutes and forty six seconds that he was being killed, but there's also the 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 context within which it happened, which was this massive public health crisis that left us in a place where we were open uh, as a country, perhaps, to feeling some things that we learned to repress in those other cases. Donald Trump got uh, a reasonable amount of the the black and and brown vote. Um, So how much was the 2016 presidential election of Donald Trump a referendum on the eight years of the nation's first black president? Well, I mean, I think it's worth remembering and we tend to forget that, you know, Donald Trump's election is due to 75,000 people, approximately, or 78,000 people uh, scattered over three states. Uh, He lost the popular vote by approximately three million votes. He won those three states, not by large margins, but by incredibly small margins. Literally, if 38,000 or so of those voters vote the other way, Donald Trump loses and we're not talking about Trumpism as a phenomena. We're not talking. We're not asking the question: Was this a referendum on Barack Obama at all? We're having a very different conversation. So it's important to remember that because I think we, we've given the notion that he is representative of America uh, more fuel than it deserves. That said, I, I do think you can't understand the, the the phenomena of Trump as a candidate or Trumpism without putting it in the context of backlash to Barack Obama. I mean, this is a man whose political star rises on the back of birtherism, which is a fundamentally racist and white supremacist thing. And so that was, you know, the the background noise of his ascension and all of the politics early on uh, of his of his run from the time that he gave the first, you know, presentation coming down the elevator and standing behind the podium talking about Mexicans being rapists talking about Judge Curiel, a Mexican-American judge, not being able to judge the Trump University case fairly because of his ethnicity. I mean, all of that was a politics of racial resentment. So so I don't think that would have been as effective for him had it not been for the Tea Party, which was marinated in white racial backlash as well. Uh, that said, I, I don't want to overdraw the case and say, oh, well, he is representative of 
you know, exactly half of America, because that really isn't accurate. You know, the, the percentage of the potential voters who he received, uh, because so many people don't vote at all, whether it was for him or Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, you know, he represented maybe a third of Americans is, is really who voted for him. So I don't want to overclaim his power, but I also think we have to take it seriously. But we, he did get 70 million votes this election, which right, is a, right, right. a lot of a yeah. lot of people. Uh, but even before uh, he came down the escalator, he I had uh, some of the, uh, the boys who had been part of the Central Park Five on my show, and they talked about uh, how frightened they were when he took an ad out in the New York Times. Was it the New York Times or some newspaper? Uh, uh, calling for the death penalty to apply to them. And they hadn't even committed the crime. Right. So well, a, they and had, that was a racial had, thing as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no there's no way, you know, Donald Trump did not take out an ad, for instance, in 1977, when David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, mm -hmm. was out murdering people, calling for the death penalty to return to New York. That was an actual murderer. That was an actual serial killer. Uh, he didn't call for the he didn't take out an ad on the for the death penalty when Joel Rifkin was committing his crimes. He didn't take out an ad for you know the death penalty uh, in those instances. But with these five young men of color who ultimately didn't even do the crime for which they were accused, and in any event, it wasn't a murder, so it was it wouldn't have been death penalty eligible even in a death penalty state. Sure. Uh, he was more than happy to do that because he has a history of 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 racism that you know that wasn't even the first instance. I mean, it had gone back well before that. His entire life has been one of this sort of bigoted, over-the-top kind of commentary. And, and that plays very well with a certain percentage of the population. Uh, and, and we've seen that over the last you know, four years. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today is Tim Wise, whose latest book is a group of essays under the title Dispatches from the Race War. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what role do white people play in the current conversation about race today, and, and where are those conversations taking place? Well, I think it's a very open question. You know, obviously millions of, of white folks who had been hitting the snooze button on this racial justice alarm clock for a long time, I think were, were awakened by the killing of George Floyd and also by the disproportionate effects of COVID to begin to see some of these issues more, more directly. Um, it remains an open question, though, as to what our role is going to be. I, I do worry about it because I don't want white folks to position ourselves as the saviors of black and brown people from racism and white supremacy at the same time we can't just sit on the sidelines and let black and brown folks do all the heavy lifting. So we have to find a middle ground between saviorism on the one hand sure. and, 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 ob and, and observer status uh, on the other or voyeur on the other, right? And that means we have to be willing to, in, in the spaces that we occupy, which is you know usually disproportionately white workplaces, disproportionately white neighborhoods, disproportionately white schools that our kids attend or maybe that we attend, we have to take a role in those spaces right there where we are to challenge our family, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, the people in our lives to, to talk about what we're seeing when we see those things and how that affects us and how that how that has opened our eyes so that it can help to open others. Because we know that some of those white folks in our lives don't have a habit of listening the black and brown voices, so we need to add ours to theirs uh, when it comes to talking to the people in our lives who are white and sometimes haven't haven't seen what we see yet. But there were plenty of white supporters of the activism of the civil rights movement over the past sixty years. Uh, something changed. I mean, the, the black is how is Black Lives Movement, uh, the activism of Black Lives Movement, different? Who's protesting and who's having their voices heard? Well, I mean, there are a lot of obvious differences between the current uprising and past uprisings, both just in terms of visibility, but also tactically, strategically, there are some differences. I think that that the big difference, um, you know, in terms of white participation is that I think there's probably more white support right now for the current racial justice uprising than there was during the civil rights movement, which might shock some people because we have this sort of hagiographic hey, memory of the 60s where we sort of assume everybody was 
you know, marching with Dr. King and everyone was on the same page and everybody wanted peace and justice and all that. But the reality is that the overwhelming majority of white Americans opposed Dr. King, opposed the civil rights movement, opposed the sit-ins, opposed the freedom rides, opposed the marches that we now honor and venerate. Um, and so the, the thing that is the same is most white Americans still are not necessarily down with with the protest part of the movement, because we get very antsy about anything that we view as too militant and always have historically when it comes to fighting racism. But if you just look at the polling itself, like raw polling around support for the principles of the movement, I would say that there's probably greater support now than there was a half century ago, which is obviously a good thing that we have to build on. Despite the fact that uh, the Black Lives Movement doesn't have charismatic speakers like Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. Uh, how has the political right distorted the image and, and messaging of Dr. King and, and, and more recently of the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, first, let me say before, uh, I'll be happy to answer that. I do think that the, that the movement for Black Lives has some amazingly uh, charismatic figures and speakers, but I do think they've also very deliberately avoided relying too heavily on those kinds of individuals, precisely because they've learned from that history that when you place too much stock in a handful of very charismatic individuals, it's very easy for them to be murdered, to be co-opted, uh, and for the movement to be reduced to them. And they're trying to avoid that. And we've seen that with Dr. King. I mean, I have an essay in the book that talks about the sanitizing of MLK. And by the way, not just by conservatives who you would expect perhaps to do that. And they've done that, for instance, by trying to suggest that Dr. King, you know, would have opposed affirmative action because he believed that you should judge people on their character and not their color, when in fact, King supported openly what we now call affirmative action on at least three or four occasions that we know of. Um, but but even liberals uh, have, have sanitized the message of Dr. King. Uh, I, I have an essay in the book where I talk about this tendency to think of you know, on King Day, encouraging everyone to go out and do a service project. And, and those service projects, you know, are not usually related to justice and fighting the, the triple evils, as King called them, of racism, poverty and militarism. But instead, it's things like, you know, giving blood at the Red Cross or or, you know, maybe, you know, feeding people at a, at a, at a homeless shelter, which, by the way, all of those are good things. But those are charitable acts. They're not justice-related acts. And Dr. King was very clear that private charity is no substitute for public justice. And unfortunately, I fear that most of us in our King commemorations, from corporate America down to academics to, to even the religious community, have sort of uh, have missed that, that fundamental lesson. Do you think that whites in this country will ever be able to acknowledge their privilege, their biases, and, and their racism? Uh, well, even if, even if they, they don't even recognize it themselves sometimes? I think some will. Uh, you know, look, my guess is I would not, if I were, if I were black or brown in this country, I would not put all of my chips on the idea or all of my marbles or all of my eggs in the basket, whichever metaphor you prefer, uh, of white people en masse getting it and, and actually coming to, to challenge white supremacy, just like I don't expect that most men will ever openly seek to challenge patriarchy, just like I don't think most mm -hmm. wealthy folks will ever really turn on the class system. However, do I believe that there will be a sufficient number of white folks, possibly, who will recognize the stake that we also have in fighting racial injustice and join in solidarity with black and brown folks to bring about a different society? Yeah, I believe that's possible. And I don't know for sure that that's true. And I make that point in the argument. I don't know when it'll happen. I don't know how many it'll take. I'm not even sure it will happen. What I do know is that that is a goal that is worth fighting and dying for. And I believe that if we don't make the effort to, to build that solidarity, even if it's only a third of white folks who ever come around or, or 40% or 27.5%, whatever it is, if we don't make the attempt, we are destined to fail to actually build any kind of multiracial democracy, because it isn't going to be built if white folks don't get involved in that struggle. It's going to be very hard for black and brown folks to, to, to fundamentally alter that system on their own. And it's not fair to ask them to. And so, Well, we this past summer, Twitter was filled with conversations between black and white friends and co-workers with white people apologizing for being complacent about their, uh, their privilege in so many aspects of life. On the other hand, 
haven't you received a lot of hate mail on Facebook and even been accused of engaging in a form of white privilege yourself? Oh, well, sure. I mean, most of the attacks that I get, of course, are from are, are from right wing folks who are you know, accusing me of trying to genocide white people or whatever. So it's usually uh-huh. neo-Nazis and those kinds of folks. But uh, sure. Uh, yes. I mean, there are people within the race. And I, and I understand this and completely uh, can 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 uh, resonate with this, that there are folks who whenever, not just me, but any any white person who does anti-racism work and receives any kind of attention for it uh, should be uh, it should be pointed out that we're benefiting from a certain degree of privilege because it's true. I mean, it's not that I'm not a decent writer. I think I am. It's not that I'm not a good speaker or effective educator. I think I am. But there are a lot of black and brown folks, every bit as good or better, who don't get the same level of attention. And that has to do with the amplification of white voices. Now, the question that we all have to then face is, what do we do with that? I mean, do I use my voice or do I not? I realize the system is going to amplify it. What I try to do to blunt the the effect of that is to make sure that I'm holding up black and brown voices in my writing, that I'm referencing their work, that I'm steering people to their books, as I have today by talking about Isabel Wilkerson right. and, and and Carol Anderson, for instance, making sure that folks understand that, yeah, you know, I want you to I want you to listen to me, but I really, really want you to listen to black and brown folks who have been talking about this and are still talking about this and have been forever, because otherwise, yes, it's just an indulgence of more white privilege. And so it's very important for us to steer people toward the source of a lot of that wisdom, even as we add our own flavor and, and, and aspects to that uh, wisdom. Well, what's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist? Well, the former is not possible, and the latter is with effort. I mean, so it's as simple as that. You know, I don't think anyone raised in a culture where racism is ubiquitous can be completely non-racist. That would be like saying that you're non-consumerist. I mean, I guess there are a handful of people that go live off the grid and don't consume anything, but that's a that's a statistical handful hardly worth mentioning, right? We all engage in a certain degree of consumerism, especially at this time of year, um, but I would say all throughout because we live in that culture and it encourages that. And some are worse about it than others. Same is true with racism. Some are certainly more racist than others. I wouldn't say everybody has it at the same level, but we've all been inculcated and, and, and socialized and conditioned to accept certain racial stereotypes, certain biases. Uh, we, we live in a society of inequality, and we live in a country that says those inequalities are natural because, after all, the ideology of America is that wherever you end up is all about your own individual effort, right? Anybody can make it in America. Well, if you raise me in that society and tell me that, and then I look around and I see massive inequality, if I was not taught to understand those inequalities as stemming from a system of unfairness and injustice, I will conclude, as per the ideology of meritocracy and rugged individualism, that the inequalities must be normal, and therefore I won't challenge them. So we all are going to have some of that, Uh, whereas being anti-racist is about saying, look, I've been conditioned to be this thing over here, but I am choosing to counter-condition myself or maybe counter-condition my children or the people in my orbit of influence to to take action against that. Uh, It's not ever going to completely mean that I'm free of racism, but it means that I'm consciously anti-racist, even though I may be subconsciously uh, engaging in racism at some level. But 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 it can get com- complicated. I began my radio career here at WBAI uh, in 1978 uh, as a, a black gospel DJ, and people were suspicious of my motives. Uh, yeah. It wasn't simply that I loved the music and, uh, and wanted to share my enthusiasm with other people. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think, I think, it never feels good to have one's motives questioned. Whereas I think for all of us, you know, if I, at least in my case, I don't have my, I don't mind having my actions questioned because I can easily make mistakes and, and have made plenty throughout the course. And of you've apologized a couple of times too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I have, and I, and I, and I will continue to do so um, whenever I, I make those mistakes. But, but I do think it, it is understandable, even if it's painful and regrettable that someone may question the motive of a white person in a in a you know black or brown field or genre or you know could be whether it's a dj uh could be whether it's a writer could be whatever it is if i have a certain affinity for a culture not my own or the leadership of of a movement not my own necessarily i can imagine that if i were of the culture that brought forth that music that art 
that that scholarship, that movement leadership, I might wonder what is that about? Now, of course, on deeper reflection, you know, maybe and especially if that person gets to know me, I would hope that they would know or gets to know you, that they would understand the genuineness of the interest. But I do think, look, in a society where we have been so compartmentalized and so isolated from one another, it isn't really surprising that motives would be questioned. And I think all we can do when our motives are questioned is continue to live authentically and try to demonstrate via our actions that our motives are not, um, you know, questionable or tendentious, but that they are, in fact, the result of actual interest and a desire to connect with, with others. Most people's historical view of white supremacy is of hooded men on horseback who burn crosses, people marching with Confederate flags, and, and a range of neo-Nazi groups. What's your definition of white supremacy? Well, I mean, that's certainly a portion of it uh, at the at the extreme end of it. Um, but I think that, you know, for me, white supremacy is the is best understood as the sort of the, 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 the leading market brand of what this we call generically racism. So racism is like the generic cola that you can buy at the store that just says cola. But but white supremacy is like the Coca-Cola of cola, right? It's like the, the, the one with the dominant market share. Other people can be bigoted. Other people can even be you know, ideologically racist, but they can't be very practically racist because they don't have the power to actually effectuate oppression. White supremacy becomes like the brand name version of this thing we call racism. And so it, it, it involves not just an ideology, uh, which is the ideology of you know, supremacy and that kind of thing but also a set of policies, practices, and procedures at the institutional and systemic level that maintain white dominance, white hegemony, white power over those defined as non-white. And like any system, uh, it is adaptable, right? Systems change, they morph, they don't, they don't remain exactly the same. They tend to be highly adaptable to new situations. And so white supremacy historically has adapted from a, from a system of enslavement where it was complete and utter domination of those who were considered black to where then that morphs into segregation. Then it morphs into, you know, sort of um, this sort of neoliberal kind of racism that exists in the modern era where it's just uh, what uh, what uh, Eduardo Benia Silva calls colorblind racism, where we just don't think about race, don't talk about race. And as a result, we maintain racial disparity. But the system, whether it's overt or whether it's more subtle, it still produces the same outcomes of, of white over non-white. To me, that's what white supremacy is. Well, much of our country was built through slavery, which is often referred to as America's original sin. But do you think that most white Americans feel no responsibility for that? And wouldn't uh, an acknowledgement of that be a huge factor in getting beyond the issue of race? Well, yeah, I think we, you know, it's funny what we don't want to claim responsibility for. I mean, we're not responsible really for anything that we're not responsible for. And and that means, for instance, we're not responsible for the revolution that broke away from Great Britain. None of us were there. It was a long time ago, but we all, you know, sort of like to take credit for it or celebrate it on July 4th or talk about how great it was. So we love to take credit for, you know, and connect to the stuff that makes us feel good. We just don't like to deal with the ugly stuff. But the reality is, being an adult, being a grown-up, being a responsible person means that you that you take accountability for, responsibility for the, the good and the bad. And that's true, by the way, not just as a country. I mean, that's true as an individual, right? If, if, I, if I inherit a million dollars from a family member, I don't know too many people that would say, oh, you know, I don't want that. I didn't earn it. So we would, we would accept that pretty, pretty gladly. On the other hand, I also have to accept the legacies that come from my family that maybe aren't so positive. You know, the, 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 the kinds of traumas that we all experience in dysfunctional homes that we carry into our own homes if we're not careful. We got to deal with the good, the bad and the ugly. And in this country, you know, white supremacy is one of those things. Part of healing that both within ourselves and within the culture uh, is an acknowledgement, is having truth and, and whether we call it reconciliation as they did in South Africa or whether we call it truth and justice or truth and accountability, whatever it is, that is the first step towards towards actually healing the wound of, of white supremacy in our country. And it's a step that very few of us uh, and certainly collectively we have not taken. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In the days of slavery, some got to run away and many got done away. Inferiority is what some men say, but that's 
played out with Kuta Kente. Then again in the streets of New York, I think of Yusef Hawkins, and I see it still stalking. So, uh, before we get back to my conversation with Tim Wise, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to support the programming that would bring you on London, though, paid at large by calling 516-620-3602 right now or by going to give to wbaiorg on the web. As you probably heard, today is Giving Tuesday. How about giving support to your community on this important day by supporting community radio? Becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. We would be happy to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Dispatches from the Race War, by my guest Tim Wise, as our way of saying thanks. Again, all you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or visit give2wbai.org and sign up to become a BAI buddy at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, any amount that you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You don't even need to mention the book to the person on at the WBAI call center. My staff will make sure that you get it if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during today's show. And BAI buddies are a particularly great way to contribute because they provide the station with a steady source of income, allowing us to plan for the future. But however you choose to donate, the important thing is that you do your part to keep this show and this legendary radio station alive. The only radio station in New York City that's completely listener sponsored. We, we don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. We don't take ads. If you agree that independent media are, are important, more important now than ever, we need your help to keep it going. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602. Or go to give to wbai.org online and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And a big thank you from all of us on. Uh, we hope you're having a, a happy Giving Tuesday. And now we return to my guest, Tim Wise, who's one of the most prominent anti racist writers and educators in the United States. Over the past 25 years or so, he has spoken to audiences in all 50 states, on over 1,500 college and high school campuses, at hundreds of professional academic conferences, to community groups across the country. He's also provided anti-racism training to corporate, government, entertainment, media, law enforcement, military, and medical industry professionals on methods for dismantling racial inequity in uh, their institution. Uh, Tim, have I left anything out? No, no. I don't. <laughs> I think that was everything. And if it wasn't, please stop because it gets ridiculous after a while. I realize I realize I need to shorten that bio. It's not your fault. <laughs> but we all know that's all important stuff. And uh, we are discussing uh, your latest book called Dispatches from the Race War, which is published by City Lights Books, City Lights Books, which originally uh, began as a, a publisher of poetry. So, uh, OK. Uh, <laughs> White nationalist groups have become much more sophisticated in their use of technology for recruiting new members um, and communicating their message and, and building their brand. Given the fact that the majority of terrorist acts in the United States are perpetrated by these groups, how concerned should we be about their growing power? And why do you think that whenever people talk about terrorism, they tend to talk about terrorism on the left rather than the right? The president only talks about Antifa. Yeah. Well, you know, I think first off, you know, the right has all the far right and the, and the fascist right, the neo-Nazi white nationalist, white supremacist right have always been ahead of the game, frankly, when it comes to the use of online technology. I mean, it was Stormfront and some of those folks that were, you know, doing bulletin boards back in the day in the mid 90s before the Internet was really a thing that we think of now. Um, you know, they were using chat boards, bulletin boards, some of the early iterations of online communication. Um, and so they adapted to this stuff really, really quickly at a time when I think a lot of us uh, on the left were sort of sleeping and snoozing and we were happy doing, you know, printed newsletters and zines and, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. And they, they realized like way ahead of the game that, that this online, you know, platform is going to be huge. 
so number one is re realizing that the you know sort of image of white supremacist and white nationalists that we have of really stupid ignorant people yeah there are people like that but there are an awful lot of uh, you know frighteningly sophisticated folks in the movement as well um is important and beyond that I think that we certainly have to take it seriously. The way that we've been primed to think of terrorism in this country, of course, is principally, A, it's principally foreign, uh, B, it's principally brown and Muslim, um, especially in a post-9-11 environment. But to the extent that we talk about it domestically, right, there is this attempt by the Trump administration to make it seem as if, as if uh, Antifa is, uh, is terrorism. Um, as if Black Lives Matter is terrorism, which which really strains the definition of terrorism, because the definition of terrorism is usually politically motivated violence against persons for the sake of you know a, a particular political message or platform. Well, Antifa, when when Antifa folks do engage in any type of of physical altercations, it is overwhelmingly the result of defensive violence uh, after being attacked by white supremacist and neo-Nazis, so much so that when the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and all these folks that Trump wanted to prove the violence and terrorism of Antifa tried to find in the wake of the uprising who's doing all the who's doing all the violence, they couldn't find any Antifa folks. They couldn't indict any Antifa folks because there were no individuals really in that movement who you could identify as engaging in terrorism. Same thing with BLM, just because someone who is black and happens to be angry at police, for instance, goes out and kills a cop, uh, does not mean, and there was you know, the case in Dallas, for instance, where the five officers were killed. That guy was not involved with the local BLM chapter. He was not involved in the development of the platform for the movement for black lives. He's just a black dude who was angry at cops, and therefore they said, oh, this is Black Lives Matter terrorism. Well, that's not really how it works. This is not someone who was directly influenced by the movement. The, the actual domestic terrorism that is happening in this country is happening on the part of people who are being radicalized online on the part of white nationalists, yes, but also by some of the misogynistic incel you know, folks online on Reddit and 4chan, some of the really hateful, um, um, you know, bigoted anti-Muslim folks. You can look at the data on this from the government's own sources, from every private source, and depending on which one you consult, somewhere between 75% and like 95% of the politically motivated violence against other persons in this country in the last 10 to 12 years, not just the last four, uh, has been committed by people who are clearly on the right of the spectrum politically and overwhelmingly white nationalists. And uh, th that applied to the Unite, to, uh, Unite the Right march that was held in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017, where uh, somebody was killed by uh, a neo-Nazi. Uh, do you think that that brought the issue of white supremacy uh, more into the consciousness of, of uh, regular Americans? Well, I certainly think that that did a lot to make people realize that there was this sort of militant neo-Nazi white supremacist faction that felt emboldened by the president. I mean, there's a reason that that stuff happens after Donald Trump is president. You know, he tried to make it sound, and some others did, that these were just people who were going to try to defend, you know, the Robert E. Lee statue or whatever uh, in in uh, Charlottesville. But of course, these are not these these young punks with their with their uh, swastika flags and their Confederate flags and their and their neo-Nazi symbolism on their shields and their helmets. These are not amateur historians, let alone professionals who were going to try to strike a blow for historical accuracy and representation of the Confederacy. These are people who who seized on both the Lee statue and also, of course, the Thomas Jefferson uh, monument yeah. that's there at UVA. Um, to, to galvanize a movement around, by their own admission, the desire to view America as a white nation. I mean, all the organizers of that, of that day, of the Unite the Right rally, were white nationalists, all of them. There were no mainstream conservatives. There were no mainstream, even far-right folks. They were all white supremacists. And so when the president then responded to what happened there by saying, well, there were good people on both sides, yeah. what he was saying was that there can be good people in a crowd of people who organized for the purpose of white nationalism, which is by definition an endorsement of white supremacy and white nationalism. I think to a lot of people that was shocking. Now, to those of us who've been watching Trump for a long time, it wasn't. 
And to those of us who understood the, the way that those groups responded to Trump's election and were and were supporting it from the beginning, it wasn't shocking. But I think to a lot of other people, it was sort of because they were still in that mode of, oh, maybe he'll become presidential. You know, maybe he'll maybe he'll start to chill out and be like a normal person. But in fact, normal for Donald Trump was always defending any group of people who will defend him. I mean, it doesn't matter who they are. They could be they could be swastika waving Nazis, but if they say nice things about Donald Trump, he's going to he's going to say nice things about them because fundamentally that that level of narcissism in addition to his racism makes it easy for him to go in that direction, which is what he did. In fact, you've campaigned against David Duke, one of the people you're talking about. Um, after the uh, high-profile incidents of police killings of unarmed black men, the use of excessive force against people of color and police interventions that escalate rather than de-escalate, the phrase systemic racism entered our lexicon. In your view, what will it take to bring about widespread change in law enforcement across the country? Uh, it, it, the, 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 uh, the phrase defund the police actually is being blamed uh, by some uh, for the, uh, the, the fact that so many uh, Democrats actually lost on their local elections. Well, it's silly to you know blame a slogan for losing when you didn't run on that slogan, and when the party whose banner you you carry didn't run on that slogan. If 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 the other side decides to caricature you as being supportive of of that particular slogan or that particular argument, and you aren't able to convince them that that's not what you believe in, then that's sort of on you, right? But but I think that look, the reality is that the movement for police accountability. And for and for a different law enforcement system in this country, a different public safety paradigm in this country actually did more to help Democrats and particularly Joe Biden than it did to hurt Democrats or Joe Biden. If it is not for the energy provided by the uprising, which is first and foremost about addressing systemic racism in policing, but also elsewhere, a lot of the young folks who went to the polls for the first time, if you look at the exit surveys, those who were first time voters overwhelmingly broke for Joe Biden. That includes a lot of young folks who were energized by the movement. They certainly weren't energized by Joe Biden as a candidate or as an individual. They were energized by the realization that it was critical to stop Donald Trump. And I'm telling you, if it's not for the uprising, those folks probably don't show up. So so a handful of you know, congressional reps in relatively conservative areas can blame BLM if they want. They can blame, you know, the, 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 the label of socialist if they want. They can blame defund the police as a slogan if they want, putting aside whether or not that's a helpful or effective slogan, different debate for a different day. But but blaming that overlooks the fact that it was precisely that kind of energy that that allowed Democrats not to completely suffer a wipeout at the polls in November, including at the top of the ticket. Um, that's an important point that I think we have to remember. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Tim Wise, whose latest book is a collection of essays called Dispatches from the Race War, published by City Lights. Systemic racism has also been made more apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. How does white privilege function in the midst of a pandemic? Well, you know, it, it, it's apparent in a couple of ways. I mean, what's interesting to me, right, is that um, in the midst of the pandemic, we, we see, on the one hand, widespread suffering. And we see, you know, at this point, we're pushing 250,000 official deaths uh, will be there shortly and uh, sadly probably be at 350 within a month and a half to two months if we're not careful. Um, and about half of those, a little more than half, are going to be of white folks, about 45 percent. Are black and brown folks. So the disproportionality of the suffering and the economic impact, by the way, as well, because the folks who have suffered the biggest economically have also been folks of color, demonstrates the inequities within our healthcare delivery system, our labor markets, the ability of certain folks to stay at home and work from home versus others. There's a lot of inequity that favors whites and disfavors black and brown folks, which is playing out in this moment. Now, that said, there's also going to be, by the time this is over, a couple hundred thousand dead white folks. So I can imagine that for some, they would say, well, how can how can we talk about white privilege in the midst of that? Well, I, I think this is a good example of how whiteness and even white privilege can ultimately let you down, even if it benefits you the vast majority of the time. Here's one way in which it lets you down. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about when this country announced when the president and others on the right started saying, hey, we 
got to open everything back up. We can't stay closed down anymore. We've got to roll the dice and just take a chance because, you know, the business of America is business. When they decided to do that, there's actually a date. April 7th of this year is the day that it was reported in The New York Times and The Washington Post that the disproportionate death was happening among black folks. That day is when that announcement went out. That evening, that very night, Tucker Carlson goes on his show. And keep in mind, Tucker Carlson was the one conservative commentator who had been taking this seriously. He was not calling it a hoax. He was not saying it was like the flu. He was actually taking it seriously up until that night. That night, he goes on TV. Not 12 hours after the Post and the Times run this story about black folks doing the dying and says – does a 180 and says, well, you know, maybe, maybe it isn't as bad as we thought it was. And he didn't say that was because of the fact that it was really hitting black folks. But, but, but why else would he say it that day? And it's only three days later that the president starts going on this, con, you know, this constant stream of consciousness ranting about opening everything back up. I would argue what that tells us is that racism and the devaluing of black life and the overvaluing of white life relative to black life is why they decided we should open everything back up. That was privilege. The irony is that as a result of taking that risk, a lot of older white folks, a lot of sicker white folks, and a lot of, of working class white folks have now paid the ultimate price because they were willing to roll the dice thinking that white folks would not be the ones to suffer. And even though we might not have suffered mostly, we have still suffered in large numbers. That's the irony of privilege. It works for you the vast majority of the time, but occasionally it also comes back to bite you on the ass. And that's what I think has happened here. Well, the pandemic has made racial inequities in healthcare and education blatantly obvious to everybody, but people like Tucker Carlson. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering whether the Biden administration can do much to reverse the things, but uh, we have very little time and a listener has written in uh, to uh, something that he wants me to read to you, uh, and I'd like to hear your response. He wrote, William Styron's great work, Confessions of Nat Turner, was much criticized by several black critics uh, in that being white, how could he understand the experience? Uh, James Baldwin, on the other hand, defended the work. Yeah, right. So, well, so, that's true. Uh, I mean, that, yeah. yeah. Is, is, that a, is that a problem when you speak out? Uh, uh, some people just say, well, he, black people would say, you just, uh, you know, it's great, but you just don't really know because you've never lived this life. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, and I, and I can't speak for, for obviously, you know, the attempt to bring Nat Turner's words or a, a, a interpretation of his beliefs to the masses, whether or not this was the motivation in that case or not. But I will say, that, you know, for me, I try to be very clear. I'm not trying to tell black folks truths. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to write a book where I try to tell black folks reality. That's not what this book is. It's not what any of my work is. I think there's a sort of fundamental misunderstanding that when white folks challenge racism, we're trying to speak for mm. black people. I'm certainly not. I'm saying throughout this book that this is a white issue. The idea that racism is a black issue or a brown issue is nonsense. It's an issue because white folks created white supremacy to then say, well, it's on y'all now. Y'all got to do all the talking. Y'all got to do all the heavy lifting. Y'all got to do all the work is incredibly colonial and, frankly, white supremacist. It is an issue because of white folks. Therefore, it is white folks' job to be part of dismantling it. Now, we need to do that by listening to black and brown folks and following their lead, which I try to do in my work and in my writing. But I am certainly not trying to speak for anyone other than myself and to challenge white folks. The book is about whiteness fundamentally. It's not about black reality. It's not about brown reality. It is about the reality of whiteness in America. And therefore, you know, it's one of those things. There, there aren't very many things I'm an expert on, but being white and what mm -hmm. that means is certainly one of them because I've been white for 52 years. So I've had, a, you know, plenty of uh, practice at that. The recent election revealed just how divided Americans are. Are you at all optimistic regarding racial difference and racism in this country? Well, it's sort of like I say in the final essay in the book, um, you know, when it comes to optimism or hope, uh, I'm sort of an agnostic. I, I feel like I have to be agnostic. I've never seen justice. I've never seen equity. I have to assume that human beings are capable of producing it. And I, I need to be part of attempting that. But I'm not going to I'm not going to stake my claim on hope. I'm going to stake my claim on action, on on deliberate efforts 
because I think that hope sometimes gives away our agency. Optimism can be sort of empty. You know, it's like if my kid goes out driving in the car, I, I, I hope that she comes back safely, you know, but I have no <laughs> control over it. Right. It, that, that's sort of empty. It's like if I get in an airplane, I really hope it doesn't crash. Um, but I can take action to make justice more likely. And if we all do that, we may get there. We may not. But I assure you that if we don't take action, we won't. And to me, that's the that's the place that I would rather stake my claim. Tim Wise's latest book is Dispatches from the Race War. It is published by City Lights Books. And Tim, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Todd McGovern, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to this program and like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you want to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I, I want to take just one last moment to ask you for your support for the station on this Giving Tuesday. If you care about Leonard Lopate at large and uh, all of the, uh, the deep dive one hour shows that we bring you that you really don't hear anywhere else. There are also a lot of other great programs on BAI. We need your help to keep this 100% listener-sponsored radio station alive. So uh, please uh, step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to wbai.org. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution of $10, $15, $20, or whatever amount you're comfortable with in the name of Let It Low Pit at Large, we would be happy to send you a copy of Dispatches from the Race War by my guest, Tim Wise. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, we thank all of we thank all of you who have called in. Uh, if you uh, have let your membership lapse, we hope that you will renew. Uh, please do it now. Again, one more time. That number five one six six two zero three six zero two, or go online to give to wbai.org. We are off tomorrow, but we hope that you'll join us again on Thursday when director Ryan White will discuss his documentary, Assassins, a fascinating film that looks at the complicated circumstances surrounding the murder of Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. We'll see you then.